Listening to the Common Fan Podcast, a Husker football podcast for the common fan by the common fan. Welcome back to the Common Fan Podcast. We are your fellow common fans. I am TJ Burkle alongside Maddie Owens Sr. Geoff and Lincoln is unable to join today. We don't know what he's doing, but he's probably off watching old Lou Holtz speeches or thinking about how long it's been since Notre Dame actually won anything. Reminder that the Common Fan Podcast is now fueled by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Certified Piedmontese is premium Nebraska beef raised by Nebraska ranchers, grazed on vast pasture land in the beautiful Sand Hills region of the state and powering the Husker football team. Make sure to swing by your local Mercado Butcher Shop in Lincoln at 30th and Yankee Hill or at 84th and Havelock. There's also one in Omaha at 162nd and Maple. If you don't live in Lincoln or Omaha, fear not. You can go to cpbeef.com to get certified Piedmontese products shipped right to your front door. Guys, I grilled up some ribeyes just last night. I'm telling you, you're going to want to check out your local Mercado Butcher Shop or visit cpbeef.com for this premium Nebraska beef, which is fueling the Husker football team and fueling the Common Fan Podcast. Yes. We are honored to be joined today by veteran Pac-12 reporter John Canzano. For 20 years, he was the lead sports columnist at the Oregonian newspaper. He now writes his column at johnconzano.com and also hosts the Bald Face Truth sports talk radio show daily from 3 to 6 p.m. Pacific time on 7.50 The Game. I highly recommend you check him out, Husker fans, with the four Pac-12 teams about to join the Big Ten. He is definitely one you'll want to follow. So find him on Twitter, check out johnconzano.com for other great content. And you can also stay up to date by signing up for his newsletter, which I highly recommend. I myself am a subscriber. John, thank you so much for joining the common fans today. Well, thanks for subscribing and reading. I, uh, you know, I'm having a lot of fun with it and there's never been, I think a more exciting and mercurial time to talk college football and dive into that stuff. It's just, it's been wild the last you know, a couple of years. I've been doing this for like 35 years. I've covered the Big Ten before. I covered the Big Ten in the late 90s and oh, wow. as a beat reporter. And uh, I just think college football is completely off the rails. And there's a lot of it that's turning fans off. But you got to You need to know what's going on if if you're going to be a fan today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would love to get into to some of your thoughts on that. It kind of leads us to our first question. I mean, you, you've been around the Pac-12 a long time. You know, kind of curious, what do you think the mood is in duck country, you know, in Husky country with the LA schools, how are folks feeling about this jump to the big 10, which it, even though it was kind of a slow burn and happened over many years, it sort of, it felt kind of sudden when it all finally happened. And so, you know, kind of curious how the fan bases are feeling about it, how the universities are feeling about it, athletic departments, whatever, you know, leadership of the universities, fan bases, et cetera. Yeah, well, the athletic directors had a big meeting in Chicago just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I spoke to a couple of them after going and, you know, I think they're all forward thinking. They have to be there. You know, it's kind of like I I don't know when I was a kid, I used to jump off the side of the pool and my friend had a cold pool. I knew it was going to be cold, but I knew we eventually would warm up once we got in and swam around a little bit. I kind of think like the teams that are going into the Big Ten are having that feeling right now because, <laughs> you know, they're they're excited about the football part of it, you know, and football drove this decision. The baseball program, the volleyball program, softball, basketball, they're all getting dragged along with all of these decisions that are getting made nationally. And so I think the athletic directors are very focused on football, but they're also, yeah, I think, coming to a sobering realization that it's impacting a whole bunch of their athletes. There's some costs that maybe they didn't plan on having. They lost the lawsuit with the with the Oregon State and Washington State as they were all departing. The 10 departing schools are going to have to pay six and a half million dollars each to Oregon State and Washington State. Plus, they're giving up all these assets. And so I think there's a financial hit there that, that has been an impact. But from a football standpoint, you know, Oregon's going into the Big Ten. I think Oregon believed all along it could compete and contend. It, it is recruited at the top of college football in the last cycle. Its NIL collective is one of the top three collectives in the country. It's got Nike backing it. You know, I think Oregon feels like it's in a good position. And then Jim Harbaugh leaves Michigan. 
Ohio State, some of the shine has come off there. Suddenly, people here are starting to think about Oregon as a contender this season in the Big Ten. Um, Absolutely. But I think the other schools, you know, USC, I think, is also excited about the football part of it. I'm not sure about UCLA. I think, you know, they'll they'll compete in basketball, but I don't see UCLA as more than about a middle of the pack, you know, Big Ten school in football on a perennial basis. And then, you know, you've got Washington undergoing a coaching change. It's less than ideal as they're transitioning into the conference. You know, is that a seven or eight win team? Probably in year one. So I think there's a lot of mixed feelings. There's a lot of, you know, tentacles to the other schools and the other uh, sports going into the Big Ten. But I think by and large, the average Pac-12 fan of those four schools is is excited about seeing Ohio State and Michigan in particular playing at their stadium. Absolutely. USC is probably going to want to relearn how to tackle before they come to the Big Ten next year. <laughs> yeah. Rude. John, John, this uh, this past fall, uh, the I kind of feel like the Pac-12 has had one of their better seasons in recent memory. Um, at least the top half of the conference seemed to be pretty formidable. At least, um, which programs do you believe are most ready? You just talked about Oregon and mentioned UCLA. Um, I guess, um, who other than Oregon do you think there's anybody else that that you think will be kind of maybe competing in the, at least in that top four or five? Yeah, I think it's interesting because USC has just, you know, it's such a brand when it comes to football, but they've been underwhelming in, you know, in the last decade, you look at the Clay Helton era and then, you know, even Lincoln Riley this last season, it was just really underwhelming to see the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, you know, and they knew they had defensive problems the year before and that defense came back even worse. And so, you know, I think USC is interesting. I think Big Ten fans are going to be excited to see the Trojans at their stadium. Oregon's certainly a brand. Washington's going to invest in football. Uh, they'll continue to invest. Uh, but I think that coaching transition, we've all seen that. Nebraska fans know better than anybody, like, you know, what that turnover, even if you think you got somebody who can help you win, that turnover is, it derails your momentum. And, you know, it's funny thing that I heard over and over, as even as Oregon was looking at potentially moving to the Big Ten, was I heard the refrain, we don't want to be Nebraska over and over. And I and I think it's really interesting for your viewers, your listeners in particular, to kind of examine, you know, what mistakes were made in that transition. How did Nebraska lose its national recruiting edge or its advantage? Uh, if you if hindsight were 2020, would Nebraska have been better off in the Big 12? I think those are all things that are in the back of the minds of all four of those schools as they're heading off to the Big Ten. Because, you know, it's like the words of Bill Moose ringing in their ears saying, careful what you wish for. Because if you're not equipped to compete, it's not just that it's the Big Ten that I covered in the 90s and people knew that was physical and we saw them in Rose Bowls and in my childhood. It's that the whole landscape of college football has changed. And the Big Ten is, you know, it's it's the AFC or the NFC, essentially. You know, the SEC and the Big Ten and everybody else is fighting for scraps. So, you know, if you're not funding your NIL collective, if you don't have an angle, you're in trouble because you're just joining Purdue and Northwestern and Iowa fighting for the middle of that conference. And, you know, I covered Purdue as a beat reporter. Drew Brees was the quarterback at Purdue when I covered him. It was a different conference then. And that conference wasn't used to seeing spread offenses. Breeze was throwing the ball around the stadium. Joe Tiller was the coach. Now everybody's running it. And guess what? Ohio State and Penn State and Oregon are going to have, you know, the better recruits. So you've got to have an angle and an NIL collective that is particularly focused on retention of your young players that you've developed. Absolutely. Well, that's that's fascinating. And that hurts a little bit, but I appreciate you sharing with us, John. <laughs> I know. It came up, though. Um, I'm not going to lie yeah. to you. It came up and I, I, you know, I was told by somebody at Oregon, they said they examined Nebraska. They looked at Nebraska's transition mm -hmm. and they said Nebraska made mistakes. Now, I haven't dove into what those mistakes are, but Nebraska fans are probably raising their hand right now going, hey, you know, it was this, this and this. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're in this collective world. Oregon's got the collective. They've got Nike. I think they feel pretty good. USC yeah. probably feels pretty good. UCLA and Washington have to be a little anxious about their first season. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we won't go down the side road, but that is, I, I think there were a lot of mistakes made, you know, from the 
chancellor on down um, over, over the various years. I think there was an adjustment to the Big Ten that maybe threw us off track a little bit, but I would contend to my grave that it never needed to get as bad as it's gotten. No. Um, so anyway, um, we won't, we won't, uh, we won't start playing the violin on, on that. And, uh, and Husker fans will tell you we're on the way back. So we're always on the yeah. way back. So just, you know, just, <laughs> just the 2024, 2024 is the year. Yeah. Um, but you know, there, I mean, there was already what, I agree with what you said at the beginning in that we're losing some of what made college football great. And some of the changes are maybe not, you know, maybe we'll look back in 10 or 20 years and say, these are not for the best, but sort of the flip side, if you look at some of the things that are exciting about this is, you know, I, I think there's a lot, if, especially if you have a seat at one of the, the two big conferences, if you had a seat at one of the good tables, you know, there's a lot to be excited about. So, I mean, Nebraska, I think about just Nebraska, we've got history with UCLA We've got history with you. I mean, we've got history with all four of these schools. We, we played Washington, USC over the years, Oregon more recently. We split with them during the Riley era. Um, so are there are there any matchups like you're really excited to see? I know you mentioned everybody's kind of gunning for Ohio State and Michigan. Yeah. But, you know, or, 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 or like, do you think there's anything that kind of has the, the potential to develop into a solid rivalry for whatever reason? Yeah, and I think that you're you're always interested in that stuff. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Oregon is viewed in particular as it comes into the conference because it was viewed in the Pac-12 in a negative light by a lot of the other members who said, "Hey, we don't have a Phil Knight, we don't have a Nike backing." Um, you know, in a lot of ways uh, there was some snarkiness that developed towards the Oregon fans in that program in particular. You know, people making fun of the logo. Oh, oh, that's how many national titles you've got, right? You know, it's the same thing. So I think it'll be interesting to see how much of that the Big Ten fan bases pick up on. I also just think I'm really interested in that core group because, you know, the strength of a conference, we talk about the top teams all the time. We talk about the teams that are playoff contenders. And certainly you talk about the Big Ten, you're talking about Ohio State, you're talking about Michigan, maybe Penn State to some extent. Nebraska has been lost a little bit in that. And it's interesting because... You know, I think there's only two things you really sell if you're a program. You can sell proof of performance. Nebraska's got it. And you can sell hope. And you're talking what you guys were just talking about. There's some hope there. So Nebraska's got something to sell there. But they're in that meaty group that's in the middle of the conference right now. And I'm looking at that group and I'm going, where do these four teams in the Pac-12 fit? Because prior to Jim Harbaugh leaving or maybe Ohio State looking a little vulnerable this last year, I kind of thought the Pac-12 teams would all be in that middle group and find it harder to compete. But I just think there's just been a little bit of attrition in the Big Ten. And I'm just curious to see if the NIL collect, if it, are we just going to line up the collectives and that's how the standings gonna, are going to go? Or, or are we going to see some separation with coaching like we used to see in the old days? So I'm curious about the middle of that conference because – I think the Big Ten has the potential to get three or four teams in the playoff in a great year. And, you know, so does the SEC. Let's see how that plays out. And then let's not forget, guys, in the background of all of this, Florida State is suing the ACC. Oregon State and Washington State are sitting off to the side going, we're not sure if we're going to have to rebuild because college football could implode again. And and we could uh, we could find that there's another reshuffling in you know, if you're a Nebraska fan, you're probably happy you're in the Big Ten because you're already with the Habs. Because I think the Big 12, the ACC, Oregon State, Washington State could be fighting over, hey, who are the best 16 teams and where do they belong? And that's what the future of college football looks like. So I do think it's important in this next four year cycle that, you know, everybody's got to be investing in football because the question may come here in three or four years, who belongs in major college football? And you don't want to be Northwestern, who has always been at the bottom of the Big Ten. So you know they're going to invest. So is everybody. Purdue, Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska. Everybody's got to invest because it, there's a little bit of a, a beauty pageant that's going to happen here if there is an implosion. Yeah, for sure. Well, you bring, bring up a great point, too, John. Um, you know, at least for me, just not just a Nebraska fan, just a college football fan in general, I always kind of view – a conference, how tough or how good a conference is and how good is the middle of the pack, right? Like that's why we mentioned uh, the pack 12 this past season, you know, you've got Arizona now had a pretty good, decent year, Oregon state had a pretty good year. They're not who you automatically think of who the, you know, the top two, three teams in that conference, but that, that lends itself to, you know, as a whole, how good is that conference? Right. So that's a great point. Um, 
So, John, I'm kind of a state a stadium geek. I love football stadiums, baseball stadiums, all of them. Um, comparing them, especially to what we have here, um, which Big Ten stadiums are you most excited to visit, and why is Nebraska at the top of the list? <laughs> Nebraska is a great stadium, and and look, I always judge the stadium. Sure. I walk into the stadium like you guys do. It's hours before the game, or maybe I'm there late and you see it empty. And there are just some stadiums that are more striking than others. But I always look at the fan base, too, and how do they show up. And I think that's where Nebraska gets a big edge. I mean, you know, I've walked into that Rose Bowl parking lot when Nebraska was playing for the national championship and the Oregon fans were all upset that Nebraska was even there. And it was a sea of red going into that stadium. Like I've, and I've been to Lincoln and I, you know, but I've seen all the big 10 stadiums. And I just think, you know, I think Oregon fans were excited a few years ago. They got to go see a game at Michigan. It was like circle that on the calendar. Now they're kind of going, Hey, we might get to go there every third year or so. And, and now that's, you know, I've never been to happy Valley. That's one place I, I like to go see a Penn state game yeah, and see, you know, sort of the uh, atmosphere at Penn state, but I think um, it'll be I think it'll be a little eye opening, too, for some of the Big Ten fans to to see the, uh, you know, the L.A. Coliseum and, and USC. And will fans show up at UCLA and fill the Rose Bowl for a Big Ten game? They weren't doing it for Pac-12 games on a consistent basis. So I think there's a lot of that, too. But I think part of the charm, you know, with a lot of the schools is I enjoy going to college towns. You know, Seattle's not a college town, so you're not going to get that experience going to a Washington football game, but you certainly get to see a big city and and it has a distinct, uh, you know, flavor and vibe to it with the with the Pike uh, Fish Market and the Space Needle and some landmarks and stuff like that. But I, I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of, uh, you know, do do Big Ten fans travel to Autzen Stadium to check out Oregon? Um, I know some Nebraska fans came for that game there that last time, but um, you know, I just think it adds a little novelty that we haven't seen. And, you know, maybe that's a good byproduct of everything that we're watching. But I do worry about the lost rivalries and traditions and what happened to college football, as Keith Jackson called it. And I think that was a real casualty of what we saw. And, you know, I watched the NFL games, the playoffs, as everybody did. And I thought, gosh, the college, I hope the college game doesn't feel like this. It really needs to feel like something different. Yeah. Hundred yeah, percent. Totally agree. I can I can tell you, Nebraska fans will show up at UCLA games. I, I don't know about UCLA fans, but I can tell you, Nebraska <laughs> right. fans especially, will show up. Especially yeah. if we're playing them in November, you know. Yeah, exactly. Just, I leave Nebraska in November to go out to LA. It doesn't sound like too bad of a yeah. deal. We're we're at USC on November sixteenth this year, so I think everybody's got that circled probably on the calendar. Yeah. Um. So and John, you mentioned kind of the situation with Oregon State and Washington State in particular. Our old friend Trent Bray, who was a former Nebraska linebackers coach, is now the head head coach at Oregon State. What's going on with those two exactly? I know I know they kind of won their lawsuit against the Pac-12, and in the short term, they're kind of filling their they're supplementing their schedules heavily with Mountain West teams. But like, what what is their desired end game? Like, what do they what do they like want? Obviously, they they don't want to become part of the Mountain West. I would guess. Um, so what do they want to see and what uh, is that in line with what's most realistic? Yeah, they, you know, they obviously wanted to be included with what happened and they were not, and they were devastated by that. And they, those two schools were the only two PAC 12 schools that actually signed the grant of rights before that meeting and that day where the conference imploded, they signed the night before they didn't have other options. They knew it. And it's not their fault. Like Oregon state has, competed under Jonathan Smith at the top of the conference in the last few years that they're one of the better football programs at that time. And they found themselves left out simply because they didn't have the media market, you know, you know, Corvallis, Oregon and Pullman, Washington, you're not going to move the needle from a media standpoint. And unfortunately, Oregon state did not have the brand that Oregon had with Nike backing it and Phil Knight, Oregon just sort of elevated itself over the last 20 years. And we all know it. And so they got left out and obviously they're disappointed. They ended up, long story short, they they won that lawsuit. They got a settlement. They, they will split $255 million in future revenues and assets. So they have a war chest. But there's a real thought right now that they may not need to invest and rebuild in the old fashioned way that we have all seen conference realignment happen. And so they're rubbernecking a little bit on that Florida State ACC story just to see if like, you know, if if Florida State wins that, and I don't think they will, but if they do, 
grant of rights don't exist. And so all of a sudden what you're going to see is the ACC implode, the Big 12 implode, and you're going to see a free-for-all. And so Oregon State and Washington State want to be prepared for that option. So they are saying they're going to continue to fund those football programs and basketball programs like they're power fives. So that's plan A. They're just going to fund, fund, fund. They're going to use that $255 million. They're going to play this next season. Uh, you know, like they're a Mountain West Conference affiliate member. They've got six or seven games each against the Mountain West. But Oregon State went out and negotiated. It had a pre-existing game with Purdue at home. It's got Oregon at home. Uh, they've got a couple of games there that they could potentially sell from a media rights standpoint. And they're going to try to backdoor the playoff. Like they're going to try to fight their way and punch their way into that 12-team playoff as an at-large. And I think they they think that the selection committee will view them as a Mountain West or better team because of the schedule that they're playing. Um, but there, we all know that if you continue to play Mountain West games over several years, you suddenly are a Mountain West conference team, and you may have some problems recruiting at that point. So this is a short-term deal. Really, I looked at the contract this morning. It's a one-year deal that really ends in the summer of 2025 with the Mountain West. It, they can extend it to be a two-year deal. Well, I don't think Oregon State and Washington State foresee playing this kind of arrangement beyond maybe two years, one to two years of having to play in the short term as they evaluate the landscape. I mentioned the possibility of the ACC implosion. They're going to keep one eye there. I think the other eye is on the 10 departing schools. And I think they're going to say, hey, anybody have buyer's remorse? Anybody have second thoughts? I think it's really interesting to note that Oregon State and Washington State did not take the flamethrower out and did not torch those 10 departing schools. They, they were upset. They were disgruntled. But they have maintained a good enough relationship with their rivals even who ditched them that they're going to play them next season. So that to me was interesting. They've left the door open, you know, should geography end up winning out and should the, you know, four or five of the departing schools go, this isn't penciling for us in these other sports. It's not working. We need to come home. If that happens, I think Oregon state and Washington state have open arms. Now maybe it's one or two schools, maybe Stanford and Cal say, this just doesn't work for us. They come back. I think at that point, you know, there are some Mountain West schools that Oregon State and Washington State would pick off. I think they're interested in San Diego State, Boise State, Fresno State, Colorado, UNLV, Air Force, that group, maybe San Jose State because of the Bay Area media market. But I don't think they they really want to get too heavy into the Mountain West. So ideally, you'd take like two Mountain West schools. You'd take, you know, four schools that left you and you take them back. You put together an eight-team conference and you bide some time until college football decides to splinter away. But none of these none of these plans are ideal. They're in a precarious position. So right now in the short term, it's about, you know, can they can they be, you know, like Tulane or SMU or Liberty in this year that, you know, was the group of five representative in the power six games or the New Year's Day games. Um, and so I think you have, uh, you know, that kind of push right now in the short term at Oregon State, Washington State. But Trent Bray took it over because he was there. They trust him. They know him. He could retain some of those defensive players that were important, but less than ideal for Oregon State to, to boot from booted from the Pac-12 and then Jonathan Smith leaves. Less than ideal. And, you know, they're just they're scrapping right now. And hoping that, you know, they can matter when it comes to this season and they can beat up on those Mountain West teams that they're going to play. It would yeah. seem regionally that the Big 12 would make more sense for those two schools. Was that ever, I mean, did they knock on the door of the Big 12 or was that ever a consideration seriously by the Big 12 conference? Yeah, Oregon State and Washington State did have contact with the Big 12. There just didn't seem to be strong interest from the Big 12. Part of it was the Big 12's grant of rights limited on uh, them with their TV partner on how many um, you know, pro rata teams that they could add. And so once the Big 12 added, you know, Colorado, then it took the Arizona schools, then it took Utah. I think it, it even had to cut a, a, you know, a special deal with its TV partner to get permission to take Utah. There just wasn't any more money left over for Oregon State, Washington State. And I, but I, I agree with you. I think Oregon State, Washington State, those college towns, they fit the Big 12. They, you know, I've always said Corvallis, you know, uh, is is kind of like a Midwestern town that's, you know, here in the Pacific time zone. And, and Pullman's got that same feel to it. You're talking about, you know, um, land grant universities, like a lot of the Big 12 schools. 
And I think there's, you know, ideally, yeah, I think, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to the Big 12, I think Oregon State, Washington State would go running. Wow. Well, John, we you you addressed some of the some of the stuff that we were asking about our, our last pod. We did a kind of a uh a, a I don't know, a new new uh college football playoff one oh one course, so to speak, um, on the new format. Um, and one thing that stuck stuck out to us is the heavy emphasis on conference champions. So you kind of addressed this with with Oregon State and Washington State. Are they now? You kind of said they they basically have to try to make it as an at large. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, and I think you know there is a little bit of a hang up here with you know the the Pac twelve still has that automatic qualifier spot right, and right. Yeah. Schultz, the athletic or excuse me, the president at Washington State is sitting on that executive board, and you know I don't think they're going to be able to hold on to that. I think you kind of lose that argument for automatic qualification when there's only two of you. But I think what they're looking for there is I think Oregon State, Washington State would love to have some kind of financial compensation from the playoff or a guarantee of revenue that maybe the group of fives don't get. I think they're looking for uh, some kind of foothold and some kind of advantage. But I expect that they're going to be measured by the playoff committee, just like Boise State, Fresno State, Tulane, Liberty. They're going to be in that conversation. And if you really frame them that way, like Washington State, they've got a ton of momentum. They've got a good coach in Jake Dickert. I think they could come out this next season. And aside from the Washington game, uh, you know, they might beat Texas Tech at home. I mean, I think Washington State, that's a tough place to play. And Like you could make an argument that that could be a one or two loss Washington State team. And that, you know, Oregon State won't be bad. They'll win eight or more, I think, in year one with Trent Braid. So you start to say, like, you know, could that be – number 12 in the college football playoff ranking. And, you know, is that a a playoff team? Like is Washington state going to get to the playoff before Washington? Like that's a real question right now. Sure. Wow. Well, this kind of reminds me, you know, the, these things have so many layers and they go back so many years, but when Nebraska ultimately made the move, the jump to the big 10 in 2011, um, or maybe the decision was made in 2010, if if I'm remembering correctly, but part of the motivation for that was the very real belief that Texas was going to take half the Big 12 schools and bolt to the Pac-12. And uh, you know, my it, it, there's been so much that's conference shakeup since then. It's hard to keep it all straight. But you know, you think back to that to where the Pac-12 is now, and your coverage, John. Uh, was was really great um, of all of sort of the demise of the Pac-12 and the implosion and everything that happened. So obviously we don't have time to get into all of that, but would love just kind of an overview. Like, why are we here? How, I know it all comes back to money, but, you know, was 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 USC and UCLA leaving? Were those like the first two pieces on the Jenga board that really made it like, oh my gosh, this is getting real? Or like, I know it goes back multiple commissioners and there were some problems with, with the last guy, uh, what was his name? Larry Scott. Larry Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of just curious, like, feels like this could have been avoided. Oh, there was also the story about the, what they get offered 30 million per school. And they came back and said, we want 50 instead with like, no, no in between ground. So what were the missteps that sort of led to all this stuff that I don't think anybody, to your point, you know, maybe it's cool for some college football rivalries, but I don't think anybody thinks this is good for, for college baseball or college basketball or, you know, yeah. some of the other sports that don't get as much coverage. Yeah. You know, in Oregon state's baseball team, they're going to compete. Yeah. They're going to compete as an independent. I mean, and, wow. and they're going to just try to be Notre Dame in baseball. And, but it's, it's really interesting because I think, you know, I have neighbors who ask me what happened and I can just, I summarize it this way. I, I think it's a total failure of leadership. The prior commissioner that you mentioned, Larry Scott, put them on the path here negotiated a long-term media rights deal that was not in their best interest. It became outdated about midway through the contract. They weren't in quite the position that the ACC is in now, but they were in a similar predicament. And it really made USC and UCLA, the two LA schools that could have commanded more money, unhappy. They were unhappy. Larry Scott uh, also negotiated uh, downtown San Francisco headquarters for the Pac-12 conference. You know, they paid... Uh, you know, 11 or $12 million a year in rent, uh, you know, and you look at the, I don't know what people, what your viewers and listeners are paying, but, you know, the big 10 was paying about 350000 a year in rent. Uh, 
for their headquarters in Chicago. The mm -hmm. SEC was paying $1 a year in rent in Birmingham because they had a, a donor who owned the building, gave it to the conference for a buck. So you're automatically, as a conference, 10 or $11 million behind the SEC before you even look at the TV deal. Wow. So the expenses and the overhead were too much. The Pac-12 network was a great idea. It was a vision to help all of these you know, non-football sports thrive, and they did. I think women's college basketball in the Pac-12 is what it is because of the Pac-12 network. You know, They could guarantee all those games were going to be on, but they didn't get distribution of the network. Fans couldn't watch it. It wasn't on direct TV. It was a looming headache, and it created really bad feelings. And remember, remember the Pac-12 network as you're sort of unpacking this, because not only do you have the failure of leadership of Larry Scott, his, his successor... You know, they hired George Klyovkov, who was a competent person in the world that he worked in in entertainment. Really nice guy, very collegial, collect. You know, he was a he's a collaborator. He's, you know, somebody right away who went out and met with all the campuses, made everybody feel good. But he was an overcorrection from the shark that was Larry Scott to the point where you have somebody negotiating now who maybe isn't as shrewd as you would like in that room. More of a collaborator not an actual you know, point person who's gonna tell the presidents, this is a bad idea. Ask, you know, when you're offered 30 million, countering at 50 is a terrible idea. Klyovkov did not manage the room well, and he lost that room. Now, amid that, you've got presidents and chancellors at USC and UCLA, who I think were bad actors. I think that they were all along sort of, we're unhappy. Why are we sharing equally with Oregon State, Washington State, and everybody else? We've got LA. You know, why why isn't the Pac-12 coming to us and saying, hey, what do you want? What more can we do for you? And so, you know, when that decision that you mentioned about taking Texas and others reared its head a couple of different times, USC was one of the schools that pushed back and said, not right now. Let's not redo the deal. Let's not explore this. You know, I think USC was already eyeing an escape to uh, greener pastures. Then you have, on top of that, you've got pressure, this immense pressure from television. And Fox and ESPN are in competition with each other, but they also, I think, don't want competition like you're seeing in the NFL with Peacock and YouTube streaming, the, the Sunday ticket. You know, you're watching a bunch of competing forces in the NFL. And I think there was a little bit of a motivation from Fox and ESPN to keep Apple and Amazon and some others out of that space. And so right away, ESPN came in. I reported that they offered the conference $30 million per school after USC and UCLA left. Media consultant that I talked with, Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox Sports, he, he had predicted that they were worth about $30 million. Pac-12 should have hired him should have read what he was saying when I was writing about it because he was right. They offered 30. He said they're worth about 30. He had done their deal. In fact, Thompson had done the prior deal that the Pac-12 did with Fox. So he, you know, he knew. And, you know, the fact that they didn't consult with him, the fact that they didn't manage the presidents. You had Taylor Randall, the president at Utah, who has a business background. He had a professor on his campus kind of running models. They came back and said to the other presidents, we think we're worth 50 million. They'd never done a media deal. Somebody in that room needed to raise their hand and go, look, this conference is going to end if we don't get a deal. It was October of 2022. They could have made an early deal. When they came back to ESPN at 50 million, I'm told that ESPN received that offer and then said, okay, basically screw you, turned around to the big 12 and offered them, you know, they ended up settling at like 31.6 million. And so that was the money. That's all the money ESPN had. They never came back into the room. They never provided any leverage. They, you know, the Pac-12 wanted some leverage with Apple and Amazon. ESPN and Fox were not going to provide it. And so you end up at the end of the rainbow with Apple, you know, going, sure, we'll dabble in college football. You know, we can we will give you a deal that we think you know, we can guarantee at 20 million a year. Then they went to 25. You know, I think some of the schools really believed, and I think George Klyovkov, if you asked him today, he believes that that deal could have been worth 40 or 50 million a year to Oregon and Washington and USC or whoever wanted to be part of it. But, um, you know, given that they had already been burned by the Pac-12 network experience, there weren't there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm in that room to take another risk to bet on themselves. They'd been through it with the Pac-12 network and it didn't work out. The, the money wasn't there at the end of the rainbow. And so 
I think it was that sort of storm that really caused Oregon and Washington in particular, you know, on that that fateful morning where they decided, hey, we're we're out. We're going to the Big Ten. You know, if Oregon had stayed, I think Washington would have stayed with them. And if Oregon and Washington stayed, you know, I had sources at the Four Corners School saying, if they stay, we'll stay. It'll be a shorter term deal. We'll do the Apple deal, but we'll stay. But when Oregon and Washington didn't have an appetite for it, and they said, we can get guaranteed money in the Big Ten, we're thinking about 10 years from now, not now. Uh, when they left, um, it just caused everybody to run for the hills. And it's unfortunate because, you know, 108 years of history and tradition, boom. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's absolutely wow, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, John, this this my next question is a little bit more of a selfish one. Um, I am maybe one of the few in this in this region that absolutely loves loved Pac-12 after dark. Um, I mean, I'd get my kids to bed, my wife's asleep, and I'll be damned if there wasn't a, you know, Arizona and Cal are playing or something like that at 930 or 10 o'clock central. Um so there might have been a, a little single tear rolling down uh, my cheek here um, late November. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at and what I want to ask you is, have you heard any rumblings about any possible Big Ten after dark or any of the traditional uh, Pac-12 schools playing each other anymore? Because, I, you know, I'm sure I'm sure going to miss that if, it, you know, if I don't get that uh, kind of that fix of late night college football anymore. I'm here to tell you that TV is driving the bus. And there's no way that you're going to turn your TV on after the kids go to bed and there's not going to be a college football game on. Like, oh, they God. have to fill that window. <laughs> and I think it's kind of funny to watch, you know, the fan bases of the four departing schools saying, hey, we don't have to play that late game on the Pacific time zone anymore. And I'm going, you might want to check with Fox and, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, there's a possibility you're going to be playing in that window. And if not, the Big 12 is going to jump on it and they're going to put Arizona, Arizona State, Utah in that yep. window. And I think Oregon State and Washington State are in an interesting position, too, because, you know, their their road games against the Mountain West teams will be part of the CBS, uh, you know, package and Fox package that that the Mountain West has. But, you know, they Oregon State's got seven home games that they can sell right now. And Washington State has six home games that they can sell. Now, I'm told they're going to sell them a la carte. Now, I don't think Fox or ESPN is going to buy all of them. But I will not be surprised to see tremendous interest in that Oregon-Oregon State game. And Purdue-Oregon State should draw, you know, interest from, from one of those TV partners. And I'm really curious to see what they will do with those other games. Because it's possible that you could frequently be seeing them playing in that late window if if they're put in that position. Uh, but I'm told, you know, they're going to they're gonna sell them one at a time, kind of like an a la carte offering and try to derive as much money and exposure that they can out of those 13 games. But, uh, you know, I think there'll be games on. I've already heard some Big Ten people talking about Big Ten after dark, and I've heard Big 12 people talking about Big 12 after dark. Somebody's going to try to steal that brand. Let's see who gets it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Love it. You'll, you'll have something to go with your Saturday night bourbon, Matteo. That's well, sure. that's all I'm really looking for here, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, you know, you, you, you've been – we kind of covered some of the, some of the issues here and you've been so immersed in this. Um, but I do think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of concern from, from longtime college football fans like us about, you know, where this goes eventually. Like so far, I think people have stomached NIL, the transfer transfer portals, you know, it feels a little bit unwieldy, but you know, hopefully we get some structure around some of those issues sometime soon. Um, there's this conference realignment stuff that, you know, you nailed it. It's not, we're not done by any means, whatever, you know, however it plays out, we're not done. Um, but I know there's a lot of concern among longtime college football fans that we're headed toward NFL light, or we're headed toward, you know, you know, kids having just contracts with the schools, which feels like a little bit of a different scenario. Where do you think, what do you think this looks like in 10 or 20 years? Like, do, do we ever find a place where things kind of settle into a new normal for, um, for, you know, an extended period of time, because what we have right now are just a series of massive shocks to the system that and the way everyone's just reacting to those over and over. Yeah. I think, you know, it, psychologists will tell you that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So I think, you know, we look at what happened from the transition from BCS to the four team playoff to the 12 team playoff. This is a system that has not embraced 
um, you know, the the holistic changes that it needed to. And and I think the the problem has been that there isn't leadership at the top of college football. You've got this NCAA entity now led by Charlie Baker that has been in charge. And then you had the playoff kind of shoot off like, you know, I, I was a kid. I watched Happy Days and then Joni meets Chachi showed up all of a sudden. And, you know, it was a spinoff for Frazier coming out of uh, Cheers. Uh, another spinoff. So you've seen like the playoff is that spinoff that has become a big thing. But what we really need is we need somebody to step up. And there are some good ideas out there. Chip Kelly's not dumb for throwing. He's a visionary guy. He threw out a great idea about the separation of major college football that I think would really help everybody else and would settle down that, you know, that Nebraska volleyball team needs to be playing a, in a regional conference and you know Oregon's volleyball team doesn't need to be in playing against Maryland like it just doesn't make any sense for that to happen and so I think you have you know football splintering away but that's going to require like somebody being in charge and that somebody I think is probably somebody like Greg Sankey the SEC commissioner but you need to call college football to step back and go look where do we want to be and let's not take 50 years to get there. Let's do this in a, you know, a, a more dramatic sweep. Like it's turned into big business. A big business decision needs to be made. And so, you know, my fear is that we're going to see this done in increments and the increments are going to kill the game and kill the sport and kill the spirit of college football. And I think it's a real fear right now because it, it is looking like the NFL light. And in fact, I was at the college football playoff title game and it felt like an NFL championship game. And I thought, gosh, does this thing need to be the Super Bowl? You know, we already have the Super Bowl. Like, you know, I'm looking for Taylor Swift in a suite. Like, what's going <laughs> You know, Michael Jordan shows up and Derek Jeter. And I was just like, eh, you know, but I'm, I like looking around the stadiums and seeing fans there still. It's not sell it out as a corporate thing. I think the playoff expansion is going to be good. I think this is going to be a good era for competition. But yeah, there are real concerns about like, how do you get to what we all know should happen, which is 48 or 64 of the top programs in the country should just be playing football and it should stay college football and there should be more restrictions around NIL, transparency. We should all know what the quarterback at Oregon is getting. We should all know what the market rate. I talked to an SEC athletic director who told me that the agents are lying about what the players are getting. Nobody really knows what the players are getting. So the SEC athletic director has to call a Pac-12 AD and go, hey, this is what our collective's offering. What are you guys offering? And they're fact-checking each other right now. There should just be a database where we're, we're all able to look in and go, oh, Caleb Williams made $4 million. That's what, you know, what Shadur Sanders getting at Colorado? So I think we need regulation on the portal. I'm fine with players earning. The market should dictate what they're worth. But I think that that transparency will go a long way towards motivating fan bases, certainly. But I also think it would go a long way towards leveling that playing field. Because right now, like, what is Oregon spending? And how many extra scholarships does Dan Lanning at Oregon have versus, you know, the Big Ten teams they're going to play against next year? Nobody knows. And I think it's a dangerous position to be in. But ultimately, yeah, college football needs leadership. It's it's the same thing that killed the Pac-12. If college football is not careful and they they just sell out to TV without anybody having a voice and going, hey, this has still got to be college football. It's got to be about the campuses. we got to retain the history of the, some of these bowl games that matter. Uh, you're going to lose all that. And it's all going to be one big television production with ESPN and Fox owning it. Wow. Spot on. Great stuff, John. Thank you. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. If you have time for for one more question, um, you know, we mentioned we mentioned Trent Bray. There's actually quite a few Oregon, Nebraska connections. And you're you know, you're a Pac-12 guy, but been based in, in Oregon for a long time. So, you know, we had Mike Riley leaving OSU to coach the Huskers. Obviously, Scott Frost was Oregon's offensive coordinator before he became a head coach. Dana Altman's still at Oregon, all these things. Um <clears throat> Do you have any good uh, Riley and Frost in particular? Do you have any good, you know, Riley or Frost stories or anything you can share with us? Or or have you talked to either of those guys since they yeah. left Nebraska for that matter? Yeah, I, I'm surprised that both didn't work out for different reasons. Like I thought Mike Riley, he's, you know, he's had success being a builder everywhere he's gone. And, you know, part of the problem with Riley's tenure at Nebraska, I think, was I, I wonder if he was running from Oregon State instead of running to Nebraska. 
I know he was feeling unappreciated. I've talked to him about, you know, sort of the lack of appreciation that he felt at Oregon State. You know, keep in mind, that was a program that had not been to a bowl game in 28 years. He set the stage for Dennis Erickson's rise. Then he came back and, you know, in a three-year period, Mike Riley won 29 games at Oregon State. It was, you know, remarkable that he was, uh, you know, in the Chip Kelly era, Riley and Kelly had some, you know, had a had a civil war that was played for the right to go to the Rose Bowl. Like it, he had resurrected the program and I think he felt unappreciated and, you know, he sort of blew town in the cover of night. And, you know, I think he was running away from Corvallis as much as anything. And I think that's the wrong, that's a wrong reason to do anything when you are a uh, college football coach, you know. I kind of worry about Jonathan Smith doing that a little bit with Michigan State. I think if he had been more patient, he would have ended up with a better job. Think about, you know, had, had he stayed just at Oregon State, would he be the coach at Washington now? Would he have been a candidate at Michigan? I don't, you know, in Michigan State, was it's it's you know, we all know what that job is in the Big Ten. It's not the best job. But so I think Riley was running away from Oregon State, and I think that really hurt him. I also think, uh, you know, the Scott Frost thing, just really interesting to me because the guy – was dynamic at Oregon and had a great reputation at Oregon. And then, you know, got to Nebraska. And, and, I, and I sometimes I want to chalk that one up as sometimes a good coordinator does not make a good head coach. Yeah. There are duties that you have to do as the CEO of the program, presenting yourself to boosters, doing media appearances that didn't fit Scott Frost's best, you know, his best skill set. And and I think, you know, you have other coaches who are just fantastic CEOs. You can put them in a room with boosters. You know, they know where the money's buried. They're going to do great in that situation. But they're smart enough and have, uh, you know, enough self-awareness to hire great coordinators. I think Frost is a coordinator and a recruiter, not a head coach. And I think Mike Riley, it just wasn't the right time. I think, you know, you got him earlier in Nebraska. I think he would have won more. And I just wonder at that point, you know, he was obviously not, we now know, dealing with, uh, you know, some health issues with his wife. There was tremendous distraction there. And, you know, I've written about that. You know, she's in memory care now. And I think that was going on in the background as he was trying to sort of assimilate himself and join the culture and the family that was Nebraska football. And it just, it just wasn't a good fit. Yeah. The Frost thing will never just not be shocking I think to a lot of us that that yeah. it didn't work out and that they never even got to a bowl game. Remember, he did have the the success at UCF as a head coach before coming yeah, to Nebraska. But yeah. but I do I do think, you know, coming home to where he grew up and where he was a star quarterback, um, I do I do wonder if after you know it didn't you know after year two you know year one's the transition year year two I think that staff really thought things were going to take off and then it didn't. And I kind of have wondered if that was a bit of a turning point where I think everything you said is accurate too. But I think if that, I wonder if that was a big turning point of like the, the, the gravity of the situation maybe started to cave in on him a little bit. That too. And let's not forget, you know, the job was changing right around that time. And, you know, we now can see back, right. You know, we're like a, we're on a plane that's leaving the runway and we're looking down at the town we're leaving and you can kind of see back and go, you know, gosh, maybe Nebraska as a the infrastructure at Nebraska wasn't ideally set up either at that time. And is it a better job now than it was when Frost took it or Mike Riley took it? Because Nebraska obviously was trying to make this big transition and and was struggling with it. You know, I and so would it would it have mattered? Like, would Vince Lombardi have struggled? I don't know. Like Bill Belichick, would he have struggled in that situation? I think it's fair to ask that because. Even, you know, recently this popped up in, on my radar because, you know, Nick Saban leaves Alabama and we and we know Nick Saban's not leaving that job if he thinks he can win and win and win like he's always won. He had to have looked around and said, I made the playoff. This is a good time for me to go. I lost the advantage that gives me the best team. Uh, I'm I'm going to struggle in this. And he was complaining about NIL in the portal. Mm-hmm. nonstop. I had a coach in the ACC who told me, look, uh, you know, there were some conferences who have done NIL forever. Now everybody's <laughs> doing it. Yeah. You know, is I kind of just think jobs change sometimes. And like Kalen DeBoer is going to take that Alabama job. It's not the same job that Nick Saban had five, seven, 10 years ago. And I kind of just wonder if you know, he struggles. Everyone's going to point at him and go, oh, you weren't you aren't Nick Saban. You're Frank Sinatra Jr. You're a bum. You know? <laughs> like, And the truth is, 
Like it's just a harder job. And Nick Saban wouldn't have left it if, you know, he, David Shaw ran and here he is interviewing for NFL jobs. Like they're just some coaches. Like it raises some red flags. Like these jobs are changing. Oregon, Dan Lanning says the grass is greener. I think he's literally going, I've got a better NIL collective than most every school. Why the heck would I want to go to Alabama or anywhere else? Yep. Like that it's just the ecosystem has shifted. And you got to be mindful of that. It was shifting when Mike Riley was there. It was shifting when Scott Frost was there as a fan. If you're a Nebraska fan, what do you do now? If you're fired up, you better give to that collective. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's the name of the game. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you're spot on to both of them. I think there were, there were issues beyond their control, both at the administration at the school and the athletic department. There's been some instability there uh, for a long time. And hopefully we're, we're riding the, or we have righted the ship or we are riding the ship in, in that regard too. So. Yeah. But well, I mean, uh, let's do this, right. We got to learn, you got to learn from your history and your mistakes, or you just don't get better. And, you know, and you, I, and continuity matters. It, the coaching changes. You don't want to change head coaches. That continuity is devastating to a program and the momentum. And so, you know, Kyle Whittingham at Utah, part of his magic is that Utah stuck with him when he had some yeah. bad seasons. So right. you got to know that too, as yeah. impatient as we all are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is fantastic stuff, John. Matty, do you have any other any other questions? No, but I just want to say this has been great, John. Thanks so much. Thank you, yeah, guys. Appreciate really, you. really appreciate yeah. you you joining us. And and common fans, make sure to check out johnconzano.com. Sign up, uh, subscribe for the uh, email newsletter. Find him on Twitter. Will be a great follow now with all the new teams uh, coming to the Big Ten. Thanks for listening, Husker fans. As always, GBR for life. <laughs> we